Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle for men. Welcome to today's episode. Today we've got an episode with Professor Rory O'Connor. Now, Rory is from the Suicide Behaviour Research Laboratory in Glasgow. He's a professor there and he is a psychologist, but he's also now been working in the field of suicide research for the past 20 years and really he's one of the world's leading experts on that. We were able to talk about lots of different things related to suicide and particularly the model of suicide. It's a, now it's a complex phenomenon as we discuss and there are lots of different aspects to it. Um, they recently updated their model which tries to explain some of the areas and dimensions that go into uh, suicide and how it comes about and how some people will then go on from thinking about it to actually taking action. It is a difficult topic. If you've had anybody that you know has committed suicide or it's been something that has been in your own head at points in the past or perhaps even now, there are links in the show notes to resources where you can get help. If you're based in the UK, then we'd often recommend healthcare services such as your own GP or in an emergency, there are the emergency services, of course, as well. If you do need somebody to talk to, there are organisations like the Samaritans, um, and you can call them in the UK on the number 116123, and there are equivalent services throughout the world. Please do take advantage of them if you feel that you need that kind of help. Okay, so show notes will be available at www.blocology.io forward slash 031. As usual, if you want to get more involved, do consider signing up for the regular newsletter. I try to put out every fortnight a very modest sized email which highlights some resources related to health, fitness, lifestyle, about being more productive, but tries to draw in some interesting angles from the uh, literature, from research that exists uh, and points you towards resources. If you're interested in that, you can sign up at blokeology.io forward slash journal. Okay, so getting back to today's interview. So the first thing I wanted to ask uh, Rory about was that I think it's well known now that men are more likely to commit suicide than women. Something like 75% of suicides are by men. So first of all, I just asked him to tell us a little bit more about that and try to explain that further. Yeah, no, what's been really stark over obviously many, many decades now in almost every Western country is that suicides um, and men outnumber those in women. And indeed, in the UK, the most recent statistics, and again, it's relatively stable, is that three quarters of all suicides in the United Kingdom are, are by men. Um, I mean, awful, awful tragedies, every single one of them, males or females, but there's a huge difference in gender. And I think what's really stark, I think, as somebody who's been working in this field for 20 years, is yes, we know about many of the main risk factors. We know inequalities and disadvantages. We know unemployment. We know depression and mental health problems are key. But I don't think we know enough about really what is the drives that difference between males and females. And some of the work that we and others have been trying to do is really trying to unpackage that a bit more. And indeed, if we try and look at the differences between males and females as three quarters versus one quarter, part of it is definitely to do with men are much more likely to use more lethal means of suicide. Um, we also think perhaps that they're more less likely to seek help and, and so on. But I think that's probably pretty superficial. We need to understand that much, much better in terms of the relationship with help seeking uh, and stigma. But another issue, obviously, is our relationship with alcohol. 
And indeed, we all need to recognize and remember that alcohol is a depressant. And, and obviously men arguably maybe consume more than women. And that's another part of the explanation. So I think it's important to set that landscape out first, what it, um, that men, yes, outnumber women and uh, the rates of suicide. But interestingly, though, this, there's some inkling that the rates of suicide amongst females might be starting to increase, might be starting to creep up. So that's something we need to take um, take a, a cognizance of and, and bear that in mind. So when we're trying to understand this complex phenomenon of suicide, yes, there are gender differences, but we have to be careful we don't ignore certain groups and that we prioritize all the saving of all lives. Yes, of course. And I, I think... Uh, that that's the, the one thing I would really that I, you, as soon as you start reading around this is the fact it's so complex that it's very easy to come up with these superficial men don't talk enough kind of explanations but in fact there's a, a tremendous number of factors one thing that I hadn't really thought about and you've just mentioned there that it, the, this it seems to be it's a you know it's a cross-cultural phenomenon that more men kill themselves than women yeah yeah throughout the world there used to be and it depends which statistics you look at but it used to be in in China um, that the suicide rate in females outnumbered that of males. But I think some of the most recent data suggests it's almost the same, if not, maybe once again, like other countries, it's men outnumbering women. So, yeah, that's it's a universal phenomenon. Now, the only thing which differs, as I say, is maybe the ratio, the relative differences. But, yeah, mm -hmm. predominantly a, a male phenomenon. But obviously what complicates the matter further is uh, when we look at non-fatal suicidal behaviour, and there's a whole... Whole, uh, debate on how one defines non-fatal suicidal behaviour because that can include self-harm which has no ostensible suicidal intent as well as really near lethal suicide attempts where the individual is explicit and wanting to end their life. But we know that irrespective of that definition that the rates of non-fatal suicidal behaviour or suicide attempts or self-harm is greater in females compared to males. So, uh, so, that, so that brings us back to this issue of um, the relationship between the lethality of the method of self-harm and, and suicide attempt and its relationship with death. But having said that, yes, universally male phenomenon for suicide, but complicated by the fact that females are more likely to attempt suicide or engage in self-harm. We need to obviously recognize that distress, which is evident in males and females. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Again, I've, again, that's one thing I'm not even sure I would have really picked up on, even as a GP immediately, that the, that kind of the suicidal behaviour that around that, you know, I know, I know the definition thing is complicated with self, whether we include self harm. Um, there's many more females than males if you look at when you look at that regard. What, what what do you think particularly? What are some of the theories around why men are using uh, methods with greater lethality? Again, we, we, that's an area which requires so much more research. But there's some evidence that. Uh, that it's to do with access to the means of suicide and perhaps that men maybe have more lethal uh, or more access to lethal means of suicide. It could also be due, to do with the fact that, um, for example, we, we're doing some work on physical pain sensitivity yeah. and what's par part of this concept of capability for suicide. And the idea there is that uh, men over time, because they may be engaged in more um, risky behaviors, more uh, dangerous behaviors over time, that they actually can, their pain sensitivity, their physical pain sensitivity can increase such that they can withstand the physical pain required of arguably some of the more lethal methods of suicide. So that's part of it, I think. Um, and then there's also there's the, the expectations around what a method will will entail. So people have, um, and it's really important we go into, don't go into the specific details of this, but there is some evidence out there that people have myths around 
particular types of methods of suicide and how easy or difficult or painless or non-painless that will be. So I think we need to, as a sort of public, be aware of that. Yeah. But obviously, to educate everybody that obviously any potential suicide attempt could end in death and that we have to protect people as, as far as possible to keep them safe in those moments of crisis. But I think that's something we, we need to look at more at the sort of the access to the mean stuff, uh, this pain sensitivity or the capability of suicide. And another factor is this known as um, fearlessness about death. Mm. Now, I don't think we know this for certain yet, but I think there's some inklings perhaps that is it that men maybe in, in moments of crisis are less fearful of, of dying than women? We don't know that for certain, but I think that's an interesting avenue to investigate because that's part of this um, notion of capability for suicide that a, a colleague in the United States, Thomas Joyner, talks about. Is, um, it's this combination of physical pain capacity plus fearlessness about death and having the, that combination increasing the likelihood that you'll act on your thoughts of suicide. Mm. Yeah, it's certainly a complex business. Um, but I would like to ask a wee bit more about that research and go into that in a little bit more depth. First of all, I'd ask you to tell us a little bit about the, you, you're involved in set up, I believe, the, the Suicide Behaviour Research Laboratory. What, yeah. what led you into this field and what, what made you set that up? I mean, I think I can guess what made you set it up. I'd love to hear your story about yeah. where, you, where you feel things are with that. Well, I've been doing work in this field now for, I think it's coming on you know, 20 odd years. And actually, it was by chance, my involvement in suicide research all those years ago in the in the mid 1990s, I just finished my undergraduate degree in psychology in Belfast and Northern Ireland, and I my undergraduate degree was on learned helplessness, which is obviously a related construct to hopelessness and pessimism, which we know are associated with suicidal risk. But I wasn't looking at it in the context of suicide; I was looking at it more generally on, on depression. So actually, so I just brought interest in sort of mental health. And it just so happened that um, I was going to do a PhD in, in the biological basis of learned helplessness. And the funding for that didn't come off. And it just so happened then that another colleague um, who turned out to be my supervisor in the Department of Psychology at Queen's in Belfast said, oh, there might be a possibility of doing a PhD on suicide. And then so long story short, the, we, we got into that field. The funding initially didn't come off, but then eventually it did. And I was really hooked in that ever since, mainly because it's just such an in intractable problem in my mind. And I couldn't remember at the, at the beginning, couldn't understand really why it was that so many people would could see no other option, could see suicide as the only option for them. And so then over the next 20 years, really, I've been doing different types of research and that. I've obviously been in Scotland now for quite a number of years. And and so I can't remember many years ago is now that I set up the Suicidal Behaviour Research Lab. And that's within the lab now at Glasgow University. It's made up of a combination of researchers and PhD students and master's students and other doctoral students. And what we're all trying to do is advance our understanding of the complexity of suicide, primarily arguably focusing on the psychological factors. Because to my mind, although if we're thinking about the risk factors for suicide, we recognize that they're clinical and they're social and cultural and and so on. But to my mind, they're ultimately the ultimate decision an individual makes is a psychological decision because they make a decision to end their own life. Now, that's not the same as saying that they've chosen to end their own life, but just they're under unbearable pain and they can't see any alternative. They can't see any other way out. So that's the work we try to do is try to understand the development of that constriction of thinking, what maintains that 
constriction of thinking? What are the sort of physiological bases, the psychological and social bases, which come together, sadly, in this perfect storm, which mm. leads to an estimate of whatever it is, at least 800,000 people dying by suicide each year. Mm. So that's one aspect of the sort of work sorry, Ewan, that we do on um, on the sort of determinants or understanding risk, but we also do interventions-based work in which we're trying to, based on a model of suicide that I've developed, which I think we'll talk about shortly, um, we're trying to look at that as a sort of framework to develop interventions to help people at their most vulnerable, um, to maybe alleviate their suicidal thoughts, but also crucially, that even if somebody has become suicidal, we're able to keep them safe in their moments of crisis. Well, one thing that I'd be really interested in, my sense is that as a healthcare professional, there's become an increasing realisation of the importance of suicide and suicide prevention. And um, we're starting to see, like, you can see education events for doctors locally and things about the actual, you know, the phenomenon of suicide and specifically talking about it and discussing it and trying to help um, healthcare professionals tackle it. What, what's your sense of the kind of the overall profile of suicide? And I, I mean, it is an appalling problem, a, you know, major public health concern. Um, do you feel that that's, you know, you're getting some traction nowadays in terms of people recognizing the importance of it and the work that's going on to try to develop um, worthwhile and useful interventions? Absolutely. I think there's been a sea change in prioritization of suicide and its prevention in the 20 or so years that I've been involved in the field. And indeed, in the 90s, when I started working in the area, I'm still pretty stigmatized to be somebody working in the area, never mind somebody who was suicidal or losing a loved one to suicide. So what's been remarkable, I would say in particular in the last 10 years, has been governments across the UK, but not just the UK, but certainly in the four nations of the United Kingdom, really focusing on suicide prevention. Indeed, obviously very recently the, in England, uh, they've the just announced, the, uh, the UK Parliament, UK government have just announced, obviously, a minister for suicide prevention, what we think is the first in the world. So I think that's a, a great incentive. Now, although it's the same person, Minister for Mental Health, obviously now explicitly with this new mandate, um, I still it's an important message that it sends out. But crucially, I hope, obviously, there's new resources attached to that. And indeed, when I look at Scotland, where obviously I'm based, I mean, Scotland for the last 10 or 15 years, in particular, has really it's been a government priority from the top right down, and from the first minister, and now we have we've also got a minister for mental health, and we've resources, and indeed we've just uh, recently launched our updated suicide prevention strategy and action plan, and that's building on some successful work over the last ten years or so, and indeed our suicide rate in Scotland has decreased by about twenty percent. And it's important that we're not complacent in that, but there's been we're going in the right direction, and I think that. Uh, Scotland, again, historically has led the way in suicide prevention, and it's, it's great to see it continuing to move forward in that respect. Now, um, having said all that, we've so much further to go. And indeed, uh, if you look more broadly in terms of public health or, or prioritization of, of uh, mental health resor resources for mental health services, we need to ensure they're adequately resourced and there's not long waiting lists. And mm -hmm. the GPs, obviously, we're speaking about GPs uh, in this context. That's absolutely crucial. GPs is such a key role, I think, in suicide prevention. And indeed, um, I, I totally acknowledge the challenge of trying to assess mental health risks and concerns in such a brief seven or eight minute consultation period. But often um, that might be the GP, the person who dies by suicide, may have seen the GP in the weeks and months before they've died, often not presenting with mental health problems specifically, but with other issues. So I suppose my message is, 
to a GP or anybody out there, if you're concerned about a patient, a loved one, always, always ask that question. Are you suicidal? Have you been thinking about killing yourself? And I know it's difficult. The answer comes back as yes, but it truly, truly could save a life. Yeah, I think um, I think one of the things about GPs is although we we often do, you do have a short consultation. And I think the average time hopefully has gone up from seven or eight minutes these days. Most of the places I consult and work these days are more like 10, 12, 15 minute consultations. But the great advantage we have as GPs is that we tend to have a longitudinal relationship as well. So yeah. you might only have a few minutes on each on a, on a given contact, but it tends to be in the context of hopefully continuity of care and knowing um, knowing the patient over a long period of time. One one thing that we are very aware of is that most GPs will be quickly to, uh, to highlight is that, you know, they're just a, this staggering pressure our mental health colleagues are under and that yeah. it feels like an ex- enormous challenge getting patients into mental health services. And they, they, for, they we have seen a constant, you know, just churn of services being reorganized and scrambling mm-hmm. and inadequately resourced um, over yeah. the past couple of decades, which has just had an un- staggeringly bad effect on yeah, you know, yeah. disappointing effect on how we can help manage people with any mental health problem and never mind those at the this extreme end of the spectrum where suicide's a risk as well. No, absolutely. And indeed just but I suppose it's also worth I, I agree with everything you've just said there, but I suppose it's always worth remembering that the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of people who die by suicide are not in contact with mental health services. Yeah. And I think that's the change part of that is yes, access or that the, the 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 person hasn't recognized the need or Whatever for whatever set of complex reasons that person hasn't got the support they require, but I think that's why we I think we need to think more innovatively about how we reach the most vulnerable in our society. If it's yeah, GPs are one pathway, but also looking at new services and new supports and how we go to people who are vulnerable. We're talking about male suicide earlier, but again, we need to look at what are the barriers to men seeking help. Um, and we always mm-hmm. talk about these hard to reach populations. Indeed, um, I mean, that's, that's a misnomer, really. It's just a fact is that they're not hard to reach. It's just that we don't reach them. And that, and we, and we need to understand why that is. Are the services tailored for the populations they're, they're meant to be serving? And, and it should be about maybe thinking about us going, us, I'm talking more generally, any of us going to the most vulnerable rather than the sort of the traditional model of expecting people to come to the health professional. And indeed, looking at new technologies, new media, and all those sort of the, well, the new horizon for delivering of mental and social care. Yeah, I, I completely agree. There's a general problem with health inequalities <coughs> generally is um, that we, you know, we, we there's an expectation that the system is as it is and people should come to us. And we're, we're, if we can break out of that, it would make a lot of difference. So they are, they are, those people, it is, it's more hard to reach for them to get to us sometimes than it is hard to reach for us to get to them. If, if I've said that the right way around, we're just not, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're simply not kind of, we're, we're, we, we could reach them. We're just choosing not to. Because actually, I just saw somebody on Twitter, uh, a mental health professional on Twitter, I think it was just over the weekend, and, and he was just reflecting, this person was just reflecting that I think it was that his service moved location to a more accessible location. Mm. And that the number of, I think it was on a, a bus or train route, uh, much more directly, and his number of non-attendances has decreased markedly since that has happened. So, so those sort of environmental barriers to healthcare, I think, also are crucial that we make sure they're embedded in service development, service redesign, and how we move forward. Yeah. So we've mentioned it's a very complex phenomenon. You've told us, so recently you've developed this model. So second, I know it's actually the second iteration, perhaps, of this model, the integrated motivational volitional model. I know that it's a bit, you know, it's a very big thing to be summarizing in a short period of time, but I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. 
Yeah, so the IMV model, which is easier to say than the integrated motivational volitional model of suicidal behavior. I never thought of the mouthful it would be when I came up with the title um, a few years ago. But it was my attempt in 2011, the IMV model, to try and um, bring together the sort of latest thinking at that stage uh, from different theorists and different sort of researchers on, and clinicians on understanding, sort of getting inside the suicidal mind and trying to understand the emergence of suicidal thinking. And then more recently, again, during the summer there in 2018, was my colleague Olivia Kirkley. We've, we've updated it. But in essence, just to summarize it um, very, very briefly, is that in a very straightforward manner, what my argument is, is that if we, if we think of two different things, one is to do with the development of suicidal thinking. Why is it that some people become suicidal and others don't? I think that's one question. And there's a second question, which is, why is it that some people who are suicidal actually act on their thoughts, so attempt suicide or die by suicide? And I think they're two important but different questions. And what the model tries to do is tries to answer those questions. And those, if you look at the model um, graphically, it's it's in three parts. And the first part of the model, which I call the pre-motivational phase, what that is is simply understanding the context in which suicidal thinking or behavior may emerge. So it's really trying to look at vulnerability factors, the social context, given that we know that suicide is evidence of huge inequality. And indeed, in Scotland, there's some evidence that if you compare the, the people, the most affluent people living in the most affluent area, and look at the suicide rates amongst those individuals and compare it to the most disadvantaged living in the most disadvantaged areas, and what you see is that there's a tenfold difference in suicide rates. So suicide, to my mind, first and foremost is this evidence of social inequality. So that's recognized by the sort of the social context in the sort of pre-motivational phase. And then the third bit of the pre-motivational phase is we know that people who attempt suicide, die by suicide, experience a disproportionate number of negative life events. So bad stuff happens to them. And so that sort of context is the context which mental health problems emerge and suicidal risk in particular. So that's, in some senses, not particularly novel. We know about that. We know these are the key risk factors for suicide and mental health problems. But I suppose what I've tried to do differently is in the second phase, which is this understanding the emergence of suicidal thinking. In a very simple way, the argument is if you're feeling defeated um, and humiliated or, or humiliated from which you cannot escape, this sense of unbearable entrapment, that statistically and clinically, you're more likely to become suicidal. So suicidal thoughts are more likely to emerge. You're less likely to be able to see alternatives and this sort of notion of this tunnel vision that actually you can only see that suicide as the only option for you, the only way of ending your pain. Indeed, I often talk about um, the, the idea that suicide, for so many, it's not about wanting to die, but it's wanting this unbearable pain to end. Mm. And then the work, what we're trying to do then is understand what are the factors that lead to feeling defeated or humiliated? And we can all we can all think of circumstances in which we've been fit, defeated or humiliated, and there are maybe external factors or internal factors, or it could be relationship crises or whatever, something's happened in your workplace or at school or whatever it may be. And there's a whole host of those we know. But I suppose for me, it's trying to understand that movement from feeling defeated or humiliated to becoming trapped. And that's the key thing for me. Suicide um, has been described by this sort of 
One of the founding fathers of suicide research and prevention is a guy called Ed Schneidman in the United States. And he said that what we're trying to do, or what, if we're trying to understand suicide, it's, it's often um, a permanent solution to temporary problems. And that sense of entrapment, seeing your, your life, your circumstances, your future as bleak and permanently bleak and permanently that you're a burden and permanently disconnected from others. That's what's key. So I know that was a bit of a mouthful there, but in essence, really, it is defeat and humiliation leading to entrapment are the key drivers to becoming suicidal. And that what I just described there is what it is a motivational phase. That's just the middle bit of the model. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then the last bit of the model um, is just understanding the this, this second question. So the, what I've just described in terms of defeat and entrapment. That's that first question I mentioned about trying to understand the emergence of suicidal thoughts. And then the second question about this transition from thinking about suicide to attempting suicide. Um, in the model, what I argue is that when, in the most recent version in 2018 is that there are eight key factors or eight key pillars that govern this transition from thinking about suicide to attempting suicide. And there are things like um, knowing others who've attempted suicide. So we know if you if you a close family member or a close friend has attempted suicide or died by suicide, your risk of suicide is elevated. Uh, we know that the more impulsive an individual is, statistically they're more likely to act on their thoughts of suicide. We know that the greater access we have to the means of suicide, the more likely you are to act on your thoughts. And indeed, if we're looking at public health interventions to prevent suicide, the most successful Interventions we find in preventing suicide are these ones, those ones which prevent access to the means of suicide, both in terms of medication and as well as in terms of access to so-called areas of concern where people, maybe say bridges or so on, where people may have, may attempt suicide or um, a jump or whatever it may be. So these sort of access, to, restricting the access to the means is a key way of reducing the likelihood that somebody will act on their thoughts of suicide. And then I touched earlier on this sort of capability for suicide, which is this combination of physical pain sensitivity and fearlessness about fearlessness, fearlessness, if I can say it correctly, <laughs> about death. And, and again, we think that this fearlessness is, is a sort of, um, it waxes and wanes, it goes up and down. So one of the things I would argue is we need to try and monitor a person's sense of fearlessness this and and basically then it's another indicator of risk and then the last couple i'll just mention are we've been doing work more recently on images people who imagine themselves dying or, or dead that mental imagery about death and suicide high levels of that as associated increases the likelihood that you'll act on your thoughts of suicide and the last one is past behavior, the single best predictor of any future behavior is whether you've engaged in that behavior previously. So if we bring that in the context of suicidal behavior, if you've self-harmed or engaged in any form of suicide attempts in the past, you're statistically at increased risk of attempting suicide or dying by suicide in the future. So I suppose my message is, and then I'll, I'll let you get in there, you and you're trying to get in, um, is that if we're trying to uh, understand the emergence of suicidal thinking. So we need to think about what factors lead to defeat and entrapment. But if we're trying to then understand or keep people safe, what we need to be thinking about are these volitional factors, these eight factors that I've outlined most of them there now, and that we can enter, intervene to reduce risk in, in that context. Now, 
It's really important to note, though, that our ability to predict who will die by suicide is still no better than chance. So risk assessments in terms of there's no evidence that any particular risk assessments can predict who will kill themselves in the future, sadly. Again, no better than chance. But what we should be using is risk assessments to look at um, these factors like I've touched on just now and formulate a treatment plan to hopefully alleviate the person's distress, but also, crucially, to keep them safe. Yeah. Well, I have no desire to. You would, uh, it's a phenomenally clear explanation, so I wasn't trying to jump in. Uh, the one thing that really interested me about the volitional moderators, as you describe them in the paper, and I was, I realised that what well, I was taught 20 years ago, where obviously, as you said yourself a little, little bit ago, that you know there was much more stigma around suicide. That one of the things I get there was only about three of these that I think that had, were, we were taught perhaps that were things that you had to ask about in terms of people because one of the main things is about ideation to action as you describe it, isn't it? Yeah. And that that assessment of suicidal ideation is a really important part of a GP's job if you you know to, about anyone who could be suicidal, and the access to means comes up, the um the past suicidal behaviour would come up, and the planning would come up. So there's three out of eight, which are the ones which I think I got taught when I was a student and have learned since. Yeah. There's five others there that really we don't ask about at all, I would say. You know, whether a, fr- a family or friend has engaged in suicidal behavior, the impulsivity, the physical pain, the fearlessness and the mental imagery were the other five. They, yeah. they, haven't, they, they don't appear in st- standards clinical practice, I, at least they don't appear in mine. And I'm assuming I'm not too far off the norm, I'm hoping. Yeah, but part, I think part of that is that we do know that the time lag between research getting into practice yeah. is estimated between, to be about 15 years. Yeah. And that's the reality. And indeed, if you look at the, the, those five factors you mentioned, they're derived from work that I, I and others have been doing and Thomas Joyner and others have been doing, but only over the last 10 or 15 years. Mm. So I think, you, I think you highlighted an important issue. And indeed, one of the things I'm really passionate about in the research that I do, and, and as a psychologist, is, is trying as, to do as much as possible to ensure that what I'm talking or what the research that we do gets into practice. And indeed, yeah. I do a lot of um, public engagement work, working with health professionals. I do um, to try and ins- get this the message out. But it, but I suppose um, it's also worth bearing in mind, though, that there's no magic answer to preventing suicide. It's, it is complicated. Excuse yeah. me, as you mentioned, but I think having a some sense of those eight pillars, of uh, those eight factors, I think are key to understanding the risk. Now it's very so, and there's no, and the other thing that's worth pointing out is the assessment of suicidal thinking is really really difficult. We know it waxes and wanes. We know we know for certain that it goes up and down, and they're for different people. We think there's about t- for ten percent of people, suicidal thoughts are really really comforting, um, and mm. and and we need to understand that better. So for some people who can live with suicidal thoughts, do daily day in day out. Is there risk greater or less than people who maybe have a moment of acute crisis and just immediately get to that sense of entrapment and can see no alternative? So, we, so, that, so I suppose for me, it's this the framework, the IMV model, in addition to being um, theoretically useful in terms of formulating a conversation with somebody who's vulnerable. If you're a GP, I, so I, I would routinely now argue that people should be asking about entrapment. How trapped do you feel? And, yeah. and when we uh, when we work with um, people in, in hospitals who've, uh, who've attempted suicide. So much of our work is with that population, that really high-risk population, as well as people in the general population as well. It makes sense to them. And indeed, in a lot of the public engagement work I've done, the number of emails and 
questions I've had afterwards from either loved ones who've sadly lost somebody to suicide or somebody who has been suicidal and is now in recovery is that 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 sense of entrapment resonates with them and the model helps them understand and make sense of what's going on in their lives. And I think that's really crucial because I think this idea that um, one of the things when you speak to people who are suicidal is that sense of being a burden, that sense of not understanding, that sense as if the person is going mad in that awful terminology. Um, And this, this sort of framework gives them a sense of understanding. Well, actually, okay, I can understand now why I'm feeling that way. And that's maybe the first step in getting the support and help and treatment that they require. Yeah, that feels yeah, that, it, it feels very um it feels very real that that entrapment bit immediately has it resonates already. I mean, I've not had that personal experience of suicidal ideation, but it, it feels like that's something that people would really engage with, as you describe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's uh, so much here as well. I kind of it, it would it should it should be changing clinicians' practice. I think uh, you know across the board. It's interesting. Did you have it in your? Uh, was it in the 2011 version? These eight, or has that have they developed the, the, since? That's that, that was, well. We had there weren't eight. I don't think um, I can't remember how many there were on in the 2011 version. But I suppose what we've done differently in the 2018 version is, as you, from the paper, we've actually created a separate panel. So the, in the original 2011 was just the original figure which had the three phases. Mm. But what we thought was important in the 2018 version was to recognise first of all the cyclical nature of suicidal thinking to suicide attempts and back and forth for many people. Um, but crucially, then, to really to um, magnify the importance of this, this the transition from thinking to attempting suicide. And that's why we've got, we've got this additional panel. And I suppose for anybody who's listening to the podcast, the, the paper is freely available um, on our website, suicideresearch.info, as well as podcasts, which try and elucidate in a maybe briefer time than what I've just discussed there now, but try to briefly summarize the key um, findings and implications of the paper and the model for both people who are working with those who are vulnerable, but also if you're feeling vulnerable yourself, it helps you hopefully understand um, what you're going through and that there is hope out there and that that sense of entrapment will recede and that sense of being suicide will recede. And please, please seek help. Yeah, absolutely. We'll make sure we've got the links in the show notes as well so people can get to those and without any difficulty. Actually, as you, as you were speaking, I'd written down cyclical. So it's interesting that you meant, I know you, obviously that's part of this and was an important fa- important element to the new, the 2018 version of the model. Yeah. But one of the things, so that, you know, what you, people don't just have one experience and then never get bothered again. It's often a kind of a long term, maybe lifelong challenge they face with that suicidal ideation and um, action uh, kind of uh, cycle. One thing I wanted to ask and move on to was just about asking about interventions and how you feel that fitted into the model and where are the more promising areas? Yeah, so <clears throat> I think that there has been good progress over the last 15 or 20 years in terms of focus and research attention on uh, developing interventions to help those who are most vulnerable to reduce suicidal behaviour and to reduce self-harm. Now, we still have a long way to go. And indeed, it's important to highlight that uh, funding investment in research for suicide prevention is still absolutely acutely and disgracefully and shamefully underfunded. And indeed, just just give one estimate before I'll, I'll talk about the sort of different types of interventions in a second. But mm. MQ Research, you're one of the, that's the only in the UK dedicated mental health research charity. They estimated that um, if we compare the number of people who are affected by cancer Compare that to the number of people who are affected by mental health problems, not specifically suicide, more broad mental health problems, 
and you look at the research funding for both, is that cancer research gets 22 times more funding than mental health research. Now, I'm not saying don't fund cancer research because, of course, we have to. But my message is it's chronically, acutely underfunded is mental health research. And suicide prevention research just gets a fraction of that again. Yeah. So that's my sort of, so my sort of, I don't know, p- public service announcement. <laughs> but but in, de- in, in terms of the treatments, there has been the growing evidence for psychological therapies. Indeed, the most co- recent Cochrane review, which is obviously the synthesis of the best quality of evidence and published meta-analysis, would suggest that some types of cognitive behavioral therapy and sort of talking therapies more generally, there is evidence that they may be effective in reducing um, suicidal thinking and suicidal behavior or self-harm. And there's some evidence in some populations for dialectical behavior therapy. And there's now obviously renewed focus or new focus on uh, mindfulness-based therapy. And so what's good to see is that there has been this renewed focus. So, But I suppose the challenge is that although we, there is growing evidence that psychological therapies can uh, be effective in reducing suicidal behavior, we don't really know what are the active ingredients which may be the most important elements of those psychological therapies. We still don't know whether um, they work for men compared to women because the studies are usually not powered statistically to look at those gender differences. And crucially, we don't even know what the the, the optimal intensity or dose of the intervention is. So, So there's so many unanswered questions. But I suppose on an optimistic note, there is some evidence growing that psychological therapies um, are can be effective in reducing suicidal behavior. And then some of the work we've been doing more recently, though, um, ourselves, is looking at this intention behavior gap, this transition from thinking about suicide to attempting suicide. So we did, for example, one study with um, people who have attempted suicide in hospital, and, and we found that if you, um, th- that if you deliver a, um, a help sheet which is sort of based on a component of the volitional phase of the model, which is trying to get people to identify sort of triggering situations when they may become suicidal, but get them to think of alternative outcomes or alternative responses. But just delivering that in a help sheet, followed up with um, followed up with uh, another help sheet two or three months after a suicide attempt, there might be some evidence that that's effective in reducing repeat hospitalization for self-harm in the subsequent six months. Now, we published this last year in Lancet Psychiatry, and <clears throat> but the challenge is what I've just reported were post hoc findings because we just found this effect in people who'd previously been hospitalized for self-harm. And so the question is, we need to replicate these findings in, a, in, a, in another large-scale trial. But while it's just one type of intervention that we've been working on recently. And then a second one, which I think is really, really important as well, is we've been doing work on safety planning. So I say it a funny way. Some people say, but that's safety planning or whatever other way people who, don't, who aren't from Northern Ireland speak. That's the Glaswegians. <laughs> well, sure Irish, can... Irish Glaswegian accent because I'm from Northern Ireland originally, but I've yeah, lived yeah. in Scotland for 20 years. But, but so safety planning is probably pretty widely known in clinical circles. And it's getting out there now in terms of the general public. But what safety planning tries to do is um, get people who are vulnerable to identify the sort of warning signs when they maybe um, are about to become suicidal again and get them to think about internal and external strategies to keep themselves safe, but also getting them to identify who they could turn to in terms of who they could contact, both family members, friends, health professionals in moments of crisis, 
and crucially also working with the individual who's vulnerable to keeping their environment safe. So that's trying to rest- help a co-collaboration of helping the individual to um, restrict their access to the means of suicide. So if they are in a moment of crisis, they don't make that transition from thinking to acting on suicidal thoughts. And the reason that's the study, so we're doing a study on that at the minute, and the reason that's important is that although there has been growing evidence from what we just, what are in the field described as cohort studies of the effectiveness, potential effectiveness of safety planning to reduce suicidal behavior, there's never been a full-scale randomized clinical trial to see is safety planning effective in reducing suicidal behavior in the future. So what we have just in the midst of is an MQ-funded study in which we're working with people who have attempted suicide. And within 24 hours of their suicide attempt in hospital, we work with the individual in the co-creation of their safety plan. And then we then offer up to five telephone calls of support in the next four weeks. And we're doing it's a pilot study to see if it's effective in the UK context, because first and foremost, a lot of the work in safety planning has been developed with veterans, military veterans in the United States. So we want to see, can we transmit these and translate this in a UK context? Now, some of our preliminary data, just speaking to those who've received this intervention, was really, really positive. And, and next year, in the middle of next year, we'll, we'll be able to report the findings of this pilot trial. But remember, it's only a pilot trial, and we would hope then to do a full-scale randomized clinical trial to, to determine whether safety planning is effective. Yeah, I've, I've, to be honest, I'm amazed there hasn't been a randomized controlled trial of safety planning in the past. I'm kind of slightly staggered. It amazes me what things we don't have evidence for sometimes. Well, so, the, so there could be safety planning in other contexts, Yeah, but there has never been a safety planning um, randomized tri- trial. There's one going on in the United States at the minute, and that's with our co-collaborators. So the people who develop safety planning for suicide prevention are, are Gregory Brown and Barbara Stanley, and we're, we're working with them in our trial as well. And so Barbara and Greg are doing one trial in, in the United States now to see is that is it effective. Now, they're only looking at safety planning. What we're doing differently in the UK context is this combination of safety planning and telephone support. And and indeed, our, as I say, so even just speaking to people now in what we describe as our process evaluation, um, the people who really, really value the, the, the follow-up telephone calls as well as the safety plan, because the thing about the safety plan, it's it's developed in, when you're in crisis, and actually the, the aim of the telephone support is to it's a it's acts as a risk assessment, but also an opportunity for that individual to change and update their safety plan, and then to think about any obstacles to maybe ongoing treatment or a care plan that may be in place for them. Yeah. Well, the IMV obviously offers an incredible number of, I mean, as I think it says in the paper, it's, an, it's a, a great starting point for the development of interventions. It's, and it offers so many avenues. And there's obvious, I, I was going to ask you about future work, but I think it kind of, it's almost self-evident from the paper that all these areas you've talked about and the fact, you know, the fact that something like safety planning doesn't have trials, there are going to be an enormous number of areas to tackle in the future. Absolutely. And indeed, we're working presently with clinicians, with people involved in suicide prevention at public health level, with education, with other really key stakeholders and trying to try to see what else can we do to implement the, the principles of the IMV model in practice to hopefully save lives. Yeah. So a couple of things I just wanted to finish with, that's all right, Rory. The first sure. thing I wanted to make sure I emphasized was that um, you've said before, and I've heard you say on the Horizon program on the telly on the BBC just this summer, that the um, uh, just asking somebody about suicidal ideation, there's some evidence that that can help. 
Well, absolutely. And indeed, it's not because obviously the myth used, used to be asking would plant the idea in the person's head. And again, there's just, there's just no evidence for that at all. But there is some evidence that not only does it, is it not a bad thing, is it actually it can get people maybe the help that they require. So, uh, so I think it's for all of us, it's a difficult question to ask. Um, some artists uh, have good guidance and other organizations have good guidance on their websites on how to ask those difficult questions. But I suppose my, my advice would be simple that as long as we ask it compassionately and, um, and directly and obviously humanely, that they're the sort of three key principles. And, and because it could take, it takes so much for the person to answer yes. If they are feeling suicidal and our response is so crucial and that sense of compassion and support, it's just so, so key. Yeah, I think um, certainly as a GP and having asked it on many occasions to many people that uh, almost nobody has reacted badly to it insofar as you know, in, uh, uh, being affronted. And it's all about the tone. I'm not, well, I'll certainly put a link to the Samaritan's guidance on the show notes again. But I would agree with you that it's really about how you're asking. And if you're asking it in a spirit of genuine compassion and empathy, it's very rarely going to go wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose mine was more reassurance for those who listen to this podcast who are not GPs. Yes. Is it, um, is it, yes, it's difficult to ask, but do answer it. And, but, but the caveat is always if you, if the person's in imminent risk of harm, contact that person's GP or if an emergency, always contact, um, the emergency services if the person's in imminent risk of, of harming themselves. Yeah, absolutely. So the final thing I want to ask, and I have, this is a, maybe a slightly unfair question. Um, I know you've been on the, some of the podcasts on the suicide behavior research lab. You've been on with your daughter and talked about mental yeah. health and other things. So the question I wanted to ask was really was how how do you how do you protect your children from the f- future risk of suicide? Like how do I protect my son? Well, that might be yeah. a question that somebody might ask. What can I do best for my children to re- you know to help to you know, who may be particularly anxious about this? Uh, maybe all the things we've discussed, but I don't know if you had yeah. any particular ideas in terms of how we manage those relationships. Well, I think I think it's such an important and, and difficult question actually, because um, if it was a combination for well, how I'll answer it is two things immediately come to mind one is so as i'm somebody who works in this field all the time and so my children have are, have been well continually um aware of suicide and uh, and also we uh, we've lost the the kids um particularly have lost somebody close to them to suicide and we know that so that's exposure to suicide so that their risk technically has is increased but i suppose how i deal with it is um, just always, we in our family we talk openly about mental health problems and mental well-being, and that when we try and have as direct a line of communication as possible, especially with my daughter who's obviously older, she's a teenager now, and and I suppose I'm very fortunate, even though we do have this ups and downs that every father and teenager teenage daughter will have, <laughs> but I think we still have this open communication of that if stuff is going on in her life, that she she knows she can come to me or her mother, my wife at any stage, or, or friends. So, so my message is always never shut down the conversation, try and promote it. And indeed, the, the whole thing around 13 reasons why, a couple of years ago, my um, there was a whole, obviously, increased risk because the way 13 reasons why was dealt with initially, I don't think was particularly helpful. But it gave me an opportunity to talk about mm mental health and suicide, not just with my kids, but with other people who'd obviously other friends and who'd children who'd been watching this. So I think it's anything we can do which opens a conversation in a safe way, and I think that's what's key. I suppose I don't know if I've answered that so well, but 
but it's a difficult one. I need to think of it a bit more. But that was supposed to be. Yeah, I no, do. I apologise. I, I I launched that on you significantly, <laughs> and I think that's probably exactly the answer I would have come up with. Hopefully, in a circumstances that actually it's about having trying to have open conversations and um and keeping the keeping those um lines of communication open with. And, you know, and I say my kids are just into teenage years as well. And sometimes it's easy for the barriers to go up between ourselves as we all react in, yeah. in, 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 with different behaviours that happen and not necessarily in the most constructive way. So working hard to try to keep those channels open is probably the best way to go. Because I think the key thing, I mean, a key thing we know from mental health more generally is a young person having an adult who they can, it doesn't have to be the parent, obviously, but whoever it may be, but it's key that that person has somewhere to go some sense of somewhere where they can speak, talk things out. Um, and if they don't have that, I think that's, that is a, a risk factor for obviously adverse mental health problems. So I think anything we can all do to promote that conversation, I think is, um, is great. Yeah, I, th- yeah, I need to that- resolve to go home and have that conversation more often. <laughs> my, my daughter will hear this and go, he doesn't have an open channel <laughs> to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Rory, that's absolutely fantastic. Tell tell us a little bit more about where we can find your your work around suicide um, and research. Where where would be the best place to find people to find out more about you? So uh, to find out more about the research that we do, um, please visit our website, which is suicideresearch.info. And on that website, we have um, blogs, we have published papers, we have podcasts, we have sort of upcoming events. And sort of and sort of a news item. So all the stuff we've talked about today and the research that we have done is on our website, and that's the first place to go. And we also are on Twitter. I have a Twitter account um, which is active, which is Suicide Research, and we also are on Facebook and Instagram as well. So, but the main one would be the starter point would be our website. Great. I'll make sure we get links to those on the show notes as well. Rory, that has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Okay, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blocology.io. You can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blocology at www.blocology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email, or make contact via Twitter, Facebook, and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at blocology.io. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.